Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our study in the book of Acts called Jesus Goes Global. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, What's in a Name? There is, as many of you know, a very famous quote that comes from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And the problem in the drama is the name Montague and all that gets associated with it. It's the reason why Romeo and Juliet can't get married. Romeo is a Montague. But then Juliet asks the question, what's in a name? And then comes that famous quote. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And she means by that, that names in and of themselves don't hold any intrinsic meaning. They're simply labels that we use in order to help us distinguish one thing from another. Well, in many ways, that is, of course, true. Names are labels, and, of course, various languages use different sounds to describe the same thing. But, and I do mean but. But names have reference. They're not just sounds. In our culture, people name their children according to names that either, you know, reflect a tradition in their family or they simply like that name for, you know, emotional reasons. And then, of course, there are those parents that decide to give their kids, well, you know, I I call them silly names. I know of one couple that called their child Banjo. Please, if you're listening to this, don't get any ideas. I mean, if your kid's called Banjo, he or she is never going to become the prime minister. I mean, you've got to think about that. You know, I say all of this because in the Bible, a name is not just a name. God changed Abram's name to Abraham so that he could be called the father of nations. Prophet Isaiah, his name means God is my salvation. And of course, we know that the Lord caused Mary to conceive and an angel was sent to her to tell her she was to name the child Jesus and then a reason is given. It is because he shall save his people from their sins. Yeah, Jesus or Yeshua means the Lord is salvation. And that's what I'm getting at. There's, there's something in the name of Jesus, and that something is the great heritage that's been given to the church of Jesus. His name is not just a name. His name is authority and power. Well, in our study of Acts, we've now come to the place where the very first church has been formed. See, the, the center of the Christian faith is in Jerusalem. And indeed, at this time, Jerusalem is the only place where one could find a Christian church. Well, of course, they they won't be called Christian until later, but that's what they are. Yeah, Jesus had commissioned the 12 to begin in Jerusalem and then to take the message to Judea and Samaria and to all the nations, but now is not the time for that. If the apostles would have left Jerusalem too quickly without establishing their home base, it would have been possible for the center to collapse, making all future efforts futile. And so the the day for outward expansion was not yet. And besides, there was plenty to do. Luke has told us that in those days, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And it is within this atmosphere that we come to Acts 3. The excitement of preaching Jesus in Jerusalem and the response of the people and the work of the Holy Spirit, all of this is so very encouraging. So we read today's text, which is Acts 3, 1 to 10. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. 
and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as we begin to read, we see Peter and John are the main players. We know that Jesus had an inner circle among the 12, and they consisted of three men, Peter, James, and John. We know that he only took those three when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He only took those three when he went up the mountain of transfiguration, and only those three were taken with him when he needed more strength in the Garden of Gethsemane. We also know that according to Luke 22, verse 8, when Jesus was looking to make the Passover ready, it was only Peter and John who were called upon to make the preparations. And then later in Acts chapter 8, when Samaria receives the word of God, Peter and John go there to establish the church. So it seems that from the ministry of Jesus and then later in the ministry of the church, Peter takes key leadership, but he's often accompanied by John. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we find the two men together in the hour of prayer, which is the ninth hour, which would have been about three o'clock in the afternoon. We again should note here that up to this point, there had been no radical break between Judaism and the followers of Jesus. And when our text tells us that the two men were going up to the temple to pray, the Greek form of the verb indicates it was their repeated pattern, as was their custom. The two men were going up to the temple to pray at three in the afternoon, as they always did. Uh, We assume from that, while the apostles were in Jerusalem, they observed the standard times of prayer, which in those days would have been three times a day. Now, this being the hour of prayer, they're heading towards the temple. So we need to see the apostles as observant Jews who have come to know Jesus as Messiah, as Savior and Lord. And by the way, all of us who are Gentile Christians today should recognize this is the foundation of our faith. So no anti-Semitism rather honoring of the Jewish people. Now, let's pick up the action. On this occasion, there is at one of the gates in the temple a man who's crippled from birth. The gate here is called the Beautiful Gate, and we can't be absolutely sure which gate this was, but many scholars do believe it must have been the Nicanor Gate, which had a set of doors which were made of Corinthian bronze, which were very valuable, very expensive, very beautiful. But now we learn that up against that luxury is a beggar. So we pause and we imagine the scene. According to Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, the law commanded, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. And then in that same chapter, going down to verses 7 and 8, we read, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. I think according to the law of Moses, there had to be a means of social assistance for the poor to allow them to function normally. But during the first century, a very different ethic was prominent among the Jews. People with special needs were not taught a trade, 
And so without any means, they were forced to beg. And so it was very common for those with special needs to be reduced to no other means than to beg. So you might remember from Matthew chapter 6, it was a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he, he actually speaks about this very thing. He warns not to sound the trumpet when you're giving to the needy. In short, you know, for a great many hypocritical people, giving to beggars was an outward show of piety. And so this kind of thing, the lame man placed very conveniently in the most expensive gate of the temple, showcasing his poverty and allowing for the wealthy and the hypocritical to make a big show of their generosity. Well, this kind of scenario, well, it was exactly the opposite of what the law had envisioned. And it must have been so demeaning if you're the beggar. And here are Peter and John. They're observant Jews, and they're following the usual custom. They're on their way to pray. They're going to the temple. They come to the beautiful gate. They pass by the beggar, and he calls out. He's asking for alms. I don't know about you. Most of my life, I've struggled with this very scenario. I often don't know what to do. I went to seminary in Pasadena, California, and And I well remember how many beggars there were in those days asking seminary students for money. I mean, I I had this discussion with one fellow student who explained to me, he said, I always pack two lunches so that I can give one to one of the beggars. But unfortunately, I mean, the beggars weren't interested in the food there. They wanted the money. You know, since then, I've met with a number of people who have told me that they've set aside a degree of money each month and they simply give to the poor. I also remember that C.S. Lewis was once with someone who was giving to a poor man, and Lewis's friend had said to him, that guy's only going to use it for alcohol. And Lewis said, well, huh, that's why I was going to use it. So there it goes. I know that our situation is different from the first century, but the feeling that we have around people who beg, I think, remains the same. How do we respond to a man who is begging? Can we go to the temple and offer prayers to God while the poor and needy sit begging at the gates of the house of prayer. It's a dilemma, and the Bible certainly doesn't ignore that dilemma, but demands that we face it head on. Every month, Back to the Bible Canada sends out a ministry update email. This email includes links to the newest Bible teaching resources, special messages from Dr. Newfeld and others, and an exclusive five-minute audio program called Five and Five. This program is my opportunity to ask Dr. Newfeld, Phil, and other members of the team five insightful questions in only five minutes. All this exclusive to our monthly update email, sent out once a month, and you can have it sent to you by simply signing up at Back to the Bible or if you'd rather just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And when you're signing up, make sure to take a look at all of the free ministry resources available, our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine, and the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, just to name a few. For more information or to support this ministry financially, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. As the layman is begging, our text says that Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. So they both come to a stop and they actually look at him. Now, in my mind, that's so instructive, don't you think? Looking at someone demands that we see in the other their basic and fundamental humanity. Now, before we come to the healing, please also notice that this man is not a part of the community of the followers of Jesus. 
if he had been, no doubt the believers were already caring for the needs of those who had nothing. Remember, they're selling lands and fields, and they're caring for those who had nothing. Now, this shows that that the concern for the church, while it was directed towards caring for the needs of those within the church, it doesn't end there, does it? I mean, we're reminded here of Paul's words, which are recorded in Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yeah, there's a special obligation that we have to the household of faith. But that doesn't relieve us from our obligation to the poor wherever we find them, even if they're not our people. Well, let's notice one more thing before we consider the miracle. You'll notice that Peter says that he has no silver or gold. So we might take that to mean that neither he nor John has any pocket change, at least at that point in time. And, you know, that might be the meaning here. But we need also to remember that there had been a fair bit of money in the Christian community with people selling possessions and distributing to any who had need. And if we go forward one chapter to Acts 4, 34 and 35, there we read, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so we've got to assume that the apostles did have the duty of distributing the money that was brought to them. It's right here that I think we can learn a very vital lesson in the functioning of the church. You know, it may well be that people were bringing their money, handing it to the apostles, but notice the apostles don't stick the money into their pockets and then simply distribute it as according to their whim. It seems there must have been an accounting for the money, and none of it was simply left to the discretion of any single apostle. So the distribution of money was public, not a private matter, and it's key. The apostles did not have personal gain through the money that was brought to them. That's one of the reasons why the Christ followers in Jerusalem were thought of highly in the community. There was an integrity in the distribution of the funds. No apostle was pocketing it. You know, whenever we find Christian leaders acting without seeing the funds as belonging to the Lord— Well, the scandal of the greed takes away the testimony of the church. I mean, the mere fact that Peter and John can honestly say they have no silver or gold, while there is a great deal of money coming into the church and being laid at their feet, that testifies to their integrity. But let's get to the miracle, shall we? We notice that the first step is that Peter demands that the man look at him. Now, we do know that the man expects no more here than to receive money. But we have to imagine that the two men are now looking at each other. So stop for a moment and consider the role of faith in the miracles that we read about in Acts. Go forward to Acts 14, verses 8 to 10. And we're now speaking not about the ministry of Peter, but of Paul. And it says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him. And seeing that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So notice the similarity between those two events. In both accounts, we have a lame man. And in both cases, we have an apostle looking intently or carefully at that man. And of course, in both cases, the man is healed. But in Acts 14, Luke mentions that the man has been listening to Paul preach, and as Paul has been preaching, the man has come to believe. Luke says that he had faith or confidence that he could be made well. 
But in our text here in Acts 3, no mention is made of the man's faith at all. Indeed, when we get to the latter part of chapter 3, we will see that Peter does mention faith, but at least this is how I read it. I'm sure it's right. He will not reference the lame man's faith. Peter will reference his own faith, his own confidence that God could heal this man. Yeah, this man was healed by faith in Jesus, but in Acts 3, it's Peter and John's faith. It's not the beggar's faith. So I mention this because it's easy for us to misrepresent these texts and out of them to try to build a formula for healing. See, I've heard more than one sermon on Acts 14 in which the people were told that if you have faith that Jesus will heal you, you just like this man will be healed. And if you don't have faith, you're going to remain sick. Look, that's not what you read in Acts chapter 3. This lame man was expecting money, and instead he got a healing. He, he never expected that. We notice that there's no repeated formula for healing, not in Acts, not in the rest of the New Testament. If healing were simply a matter of having enough faith, well then, well, we'd have to expect if, you know, if anyone can muster up the right kind of faith, they'd be healed every time, all the time. Is that what we find in the New Testament? No, in fact, we find the opposite. Later, Paul's going to mention he has a thorn in the flesh. It's some form of physical malady that even though he had prayed most earnestly that it be taken away, and we have to imagine he has faith in God, God tells him he's not going to take it away. You know, God is concerned that Paul should glory in God's power in spite of Paul's own weakness. And in Philippians, Paul mentions a man, Epaphrodites, who almost died. And the reason he was healed, says Paul, is not because he had faith, but rather because God had compassion on Paul, not Epaphrodites. Evidently, Paul had been so burdened in his own sufferings, if Epaphrodites had died, it would have been a greater burden than Paul would have emotionally been able to carry. So Epaphrodites was healed because God's kindness to Paul. That's it. See, I'm making the point. There is no formula in the New Testament for how to get healed. But that God does decide moments for healing, well, that part is plain. And so all we have to conclude from our text in Acts 3 is that Peter and John seem to have been directed by the Holy Spirit to perform this miracle right there. And what's the purpose of the miracle? Well, you might remember that I began this message by quoting from Shakespeare, who put those famous words into the mouth of one of his characters. A rose by any other name would still smell just as sweet. But here it's very different. Notice verse 6. Peter has just told the man, we have no silver or gold, but we're going to give you what we have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he says, that is, I'm not going to give you money. I'm going to give you something far more precious. I'm going to give you a name. The name, that's the significant piece in this account. The name Jesus is a reference to the full revelation of all that is Jesus. The name refers to the historical Jesus. It's about, you know, his virgin conception, his birth, his ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, awaiting to return again and to inherit an eternal kingdom. I mean, all of that is put into that one name, Jesus. But Peter also adds, in the name of Jesus Christ. And look, I say this often. I got to say it again. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. And since Luke is translating Peter's words from Aramaic to Greek, 
Peter must have said, in the name of Jesus, who is the Messiah. And then he adds, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth. You know, just so there's no confusion as to which Jesus I'm speaking about. I'm not speaking about whatever Jesus comes into your mind when you hear the name. I'm talking about the real historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth. And the entire point of this is that this name is the name of authority. You know, Paul would later say, at this name, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know, later when we consider all the baptisms that are done in Acts, they're done in the name of Jesus. And look, that doesn't mean they're baptized using the name. You know, Matthew has recorded for us that Jesus instructed the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what they would have done. But who gave them authority to do that? Ah, yeah. Luke tells us over and over again, it was done in the name of Jesus, that is, by his authority. And that's what Peter says to this man. At this moment, Jesus Christ of Nazareth has authorized me to act on his behalf. You stand up. Now, of course, the man couldn't stand. He's lame from birth. And so right here, we have to ask ourselves, which authority is greater? Is it the authority of his physical condition that dictates what he will do. His legs are atrophied, his muscles are gone. Or is the name of Jesus greater than the dictates of the flesh? And Peter answers by taking his hand and pulling him up. And the man leaps up and he praises God. And wow, that's got everyone's attention. What's in a name? There's that much invested in the name of Jesus. John, let me ask you this. When we pray in the name of Jesus, as as referenced in our passage, should we not expect healing of the sick and the lame? <laughs> yeah, Ben, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat hesitant with the answer. Yes, I'm going to say that there is far more power in the name of Jesus than we had ever imagined. But we also know that the name of Jesus is not a magical formula to get us whatever we want. Uh, The name of Jesus uh, introduces us to the will of God. That is, we're speaking in his authority as if Jesus himself were making the asking. And so we need to learn what God is about. And it may be in a given point in time that it's not God's will to heal. At other times, it may be. So let's learn his will. Thanks, John. That's so helpful. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. These are challenging days. Many, some our neighbors, family, friends, find themselves in difficulty they would not have imagined only a few months ago. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something or somewhere to place our confidence And for many, that means a considered rediscovery of their faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. I know for Back to the Bible, these days have provided a stark reminder of the need, privilege, and opportunity to represent Jesus Christ through the teaching of the Bible. In short, it's reinforced for us the need to keep showing up, to remain faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching, we want to be there. Your continued support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada is essential. God's people across Canada recognizing the times and responding with the truth of God's Word. To discover more about Back to the Bible Canada or to offer a gift to support, 
Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.